Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, thank you once again for joining me for another episode of Felony Friday here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Today I have a guest who is nationally recognized. She's a nationally recognized expert in forensic DNA. I think it's going to be a really exciting show and a show where hopefully you can listen and and learn a lot as well as I hope to learn a lot also. Some of the things that we're going to talk about, I will link to in the show notes. So make sure that you uh, take note of the show notes page. It's going to be at lionsofliberty.com slash FF22. This is episode 22, so you can find it at lionsofliberty.com slash FF22. My guest today is Aaron Murphy. Aaron is a law professor at NYU. Before that, she was a defense lawyer. And at NYU, her research focuses on technology and forensic evidence in the criminal justice system. She is a nationally recognized expert in forensic DNA typing, and her work has been cited multiple times by the Supreme Court. Her new book, which was released last fall, is called Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. Erin, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here, Erin, and I really do want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, share some stuff about DNA with the Felony Friday audience. And I have to admit that my knowledge and understanding of uh, DNA, forensic DNA, it's pretty minimal. I have read some of your book, but I have to admit that <laughs> a lot of it went over my head. So I'm very happy to have you here to ask you some questions. Well, I think that's representative of most people. One of the things I was hoping to do with the book is try to bridge some of the gaps amongst the science and the statistics and the social policy to try to bring those different expertise areas together. So my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to get into that. But before we do go down the DNA road, I just wanted to kind of get some background information on you so the Felony Friday audience can get to know you just a little bit better. So if you could maybe kind of take us through your career path and sort of a a linear progression and maybe start now with when you decided to or maybe what motivated you to work full time with the law? Sure. With the law or with DNA specifically, like why I was interested? In- I guess what got you down first? What got you down a career path to want to become a lawyer and then DNA from there? Yeah, well, I don't know. I have kind of competing narratives that I think I've refined over the time about why I started in law. I think some of it is just because I've always loved words. My mother was an English teacher. My father's always loved literature. And I think I've always been attracted to kind of words and the art of persuasion. And law was a way to kind of take a love of language and put it into service because, you know, the words you use in law are critical, whether it's writing a statute or making an argument. And I think some of that was just a natural outgrowth of a love of of language, really. But then I also was really motivated specifically to work with legal issues or to do legal work that really focused on questions of social justice and equality in our society, injustice that I had seen. And so that kind of led me down the path that was my initial career path of being a public defender and an interest in the criminal justice system, which is sort of, I think, ground zero for some of those issues, naturally followed from a kind of interest in equality and justice. 
So you started out after graduating law school. Well, I guess first, where did you go to law school? I was at Harvard for law school. And then I clerked for a year for the best judge in the country, uh, Merrick Garland, who I'm sure uh, some of your listeners will know has been nominated for the Supreme Court and had a truly wonderful and incredible year with him. And then started at the Public Defenders right after that. Spent five years at the Public Defender, transitioned to academia, which is somewhat unusual, but sort of went directly into academia, started my career at Berkeley, a wonderful institution, spent five years there and then have been at NYU now for six years, going on seven, I guess. Okay. And your time as a public defender, was that in the early 2000s? Is that about right? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's where really my interest in DNA started because at that time, the DNA database was just getting going. And we as public defenders were just starting to see cases with a real DNA component. And it really hit me then. I was lucky to be in an office that has uh, sort of adequate resources that was able to get a grant to kind of train a cadre of lawyers in the science and the statistics around DNA. But it really struck me that my experience was exceptional, that most public defenders were not going to be given the kind of resources and support I had. And yet I could tell this evidence, DNA, was really going to be a game changer for the criminal justice system. So that got my interest in DNA, both as a kind of practice matter and also as an academic or scholarly matter started. So you're a public defender. What did that process look like? You you got the grant money to study DNA to, to learn more about the field. What did that education process look like for yourself and for fellow public defenders? You know, it was really about as basic as you can imagine. It bore no resemblance to like television shows where they have the kind of music playing and everything comes together perfectly. We were a much more ragtag bunch. So this was uh, a group of, I guess, probably there was maybe 10 or 15 of us. And it was you know, they were lawyers who had volunteered to spend their weekends and kind of after hours uh, working on these issues. So all of the trainings took place on Saturday or Sunday. And the first lecture was actually my college roommate who just as chance would have it, you know, knew genetics was in a postdoc at the National Institutes of Health doing genetics work. And so she came, I asked her just to volunteer to come and talk to us and gave that very first lecture that was as basic as, you know, your body contains cells and the nucleus of the cells is DNA, the building block of your existence. So she gave that first presentation. And then from there, we got increasingly more specific and detailed kind of presentations, lectures, readings that helps the lawyers truly understand the science and the statistics we'd be dealing with. Do you remember your first case where you had to use this knowledge? I do. Uh, it was a homicide case, and we had a, I thought, very strong self-defense claim. And uh, evidence that our client's DNA was found inside of the apartment of the decedent, who was a former girlfriend. And you know, our knowledge of the DNA and how easy it was for traces of DNA to show up somewhere someone had been, and he had in fact lived there for a while, made I think a impression or made a dent in the case. If someone hadn't had, if a juror hadn't heard that, you know, it wouldn't be unusual at all to find DNA on a shower or on a sink if you're a resident in an apartment. I think they might have assumed something, you know, inaccurate about what had happened in the case. So you were talking about there with, with that case, uh, a DNA match. They found the, uh, the, you know, this individual's DNA in the apartment. 
when you hear the words DNA match, what is that actually? What, what does that mean? Well, so I think a lot of people assume, you know, from TV or from popular media that if you hear a match, it's just the end of the discussion. This means the person either committed the crime or, you know, has to be guilty. And in fact, a DNA match is just like any other biological match. It's only as strong as the rarity or the value of the match. So if I said, oh my gosh, you know, the perpetrator of the crime has brown eyes and I found someone on the street who has brown eyes, it's a match. You know, most people would laugh and say, uh, you're going to need a little bit more than that. Brown eyes are really common in our population. And similarly, the parts of the genome that are used for forensic DNA, which aren't parts that have anything to do with physical traits, it's not like brown eyes in the sense that you can see it, but like brown eyes, it has a rarity. It's a common or a rare thing. The parts of the genome that are used for forensics are similarly rare or common. And so a match really doesn't mean anything more than there's some commonality between the suspects and the DNA found at the scene. And the next question you have to ask is, well, how rare is that match? How much commonality is there? And only if you know the answer to that can you really know the value of the DNA in the case. So talking about how rare the match is, that's explained through random match probability. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That's one way to capture it. The sort of most straightforward case where there's just one person's DNA in a sample, the random match probability is usually how the rarity is expressed. And what that means basically is if you picked a person at random on the street, how likely is it they would match these genetic traits? And so it kind of expresses the rarity of the trait. So can you just go into that a little bit deeper? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, so I think when people hear these numbers like one in a million or one in a billion or what have you, they assume that means something like, you know, the likelihood that the defendant is, you know, not guilty or the likelihood that the defendant is the actual source of the DNA or something like that. And in reality, all it is, is like I said, it's the probability or the rarity of the DNA profile that you've seen. And so, you know, if you have a profile with a rarity of one in a thousand, that sounds like a really good number until you realize that, you know, for instance, in the metropolitan New York area, we have 8 million people. And so that's not a very rare trait. You'd expect one in every thousand people to have those set of traits. And so you're going to want a little bit more. Even if you have something as rare as one in a million, for instance, in New York, you'd expect eight people to have those set of traits. And so you'd want more information. Now, sometimes the more information can be as simple as, you know, right age range, right geographic location, knows the victim or something like that. But, you know, apart from that, and especially when you get into rarity statistics that aren't as quite as impressive, I think it's important to remember that what sounds on its face like a really unlikely or rare profile might not be so rare at all. And one thing to add to that is that increasingly cases are made on the basis of DNA database matches. So essentially you go into the federal database, which has 14 million known persons profiles. So 14 million individuals DNA profiles, and you see whether, you know, you can find a match to the crime scene evidence. And so that, again, raises a real concern because a seemingly powerful match statistic becomes much less powerful if it is something that, you know, if you're looking in a database of 14 million people and it's a one in a million rarity profile, you would obviously expect to find 14 people who have that profile. And so understanding how we can kind of lose sight of the statistics, I think, and have a misimpression of the evidence is important. 
So 14 million people sounds like a lot. And you're saying that is that the size of the federal database yeah, in the United States? Exactly. That's the current size of the national databases. The actual number of people with DNA profiles in government control is much higher because states tend to have more than what's in the national database. Most states have, uh, you know, kind of additional profiles, but that's the, the federal database that draws from all 50 states. How would an individual end up in a DNA database? Is it do they have to commit a crime for that to happen, or are there other ways that they could be included? It really varies. Initially, when these DNA databases came into being, the standard was a convicted person, someone who'd been convicted of a really serious offense, like a sexual assault or a rape. And the idea was it was a you know a bit um, unusual to say that the government has the ability to take something as personal and private as genetic information and store it indefinitely. So courts, when they ruled on those initial convicted person databases, said, well, you know, in general, we don't allow the government to sort of get information like this unless they have a reasonable suspicion. But in this case, a convicted person loses some of the privacy from the government that a uh, person who hasn't been convicted has. And so, for instance, you know, if someone has been convicted of a crime and they're on probation or they're on parole, the government doesn't need a warrant to search their house. The government can just go into their house and search it. And that's a right that uh, people who haven't been convicted of a crime obviously have. The government can't just come into your home and search it without a warrant. And so analogizing to the kind of rights and loss of privacy that convicted people have in other areas, the courts have said, well, it's, it's okay to require people convicted of a crime to give their DNA. In subsequent years, the categories really expanded. Suddenly, it wasn't just the most serious offenses. It was less serious felonies and then eventually misdemeanors. And now all 50 states collect DNA from felons, uh, many also from people who've been convicted of misdemeanors. And then in the past five or so years, the next phase has been to expand DNA collection, compulsory collection to people who have been arrested of a crime. Now, I want to make something really clear for your listeners. No one has ever doubted that if somebody was suspected of a crime because of other evidence, and there happened to be DNA as well, that you know, when you make an arrest of a suspect, you could compel that person, that suspect's DNA, to see if it matches. So if you know there's a robbery and the robber leaves some blood at the scene and somehow other evidence, you know, somebody follows the getaway car and they manage to capture someone they think is a suspect, no one's ever questioned that when arrested for the robbery, the accused could be compelled to give a DNA sample. What arrestee statutes say is a person who's arrested for a crime has to give a DNA sample, regardless of whether DNA has anything to do with the case, regardless of you know whether there's any reason to believe they've been involved in any other crimes. It's just you know, as the same as giving your name, you have to give a DNA sample at the time you're arrested. And so in 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States held in a very closely decided case, 5-4, with actually late Justice Scalia writing for the dissenters that the Constitution allows a state to compel people who are arrested for crimes to give their DNA to the government. And that was a pretty big deal in in sort of legal terms. It it represented a a real widening of the government's authority when it comes to people who are just accused of crimes and otherwise presumed innocent under the law. Yeah, certainly seems like a slippery slope going forward. Yeah. Definitely potential privacy issues. Absolutely. And the dissent by uh, Justice Scalia, I thought, really did a nice job in pointing out that the same reasoning the government used to justify taking DNA at the time of arrest um, was reasoning you could easily see being used to say, well, we need you know someone's DNA if they want a driver's license. We need someone's DNA if they want a business license. We see we need a DNA if we want you know if somebody wants to get a federal loan or anything really that requires kind of state permission. 
you could easily see the same rationale for requiring, you know, people give over their DNA. And if you look at what's happened in the world of fingerprints, you know, a huge number of Americans now have fingerprints on file with the FBI. And whatever you think of that policy, at least uh, fingerprints haven't really been, they don't have any kind of sensitive medical or personal issue. You know, you can't really learn anything about an individual from looking at their fingerprints. Whereas when you look at someone's DNA, you can tell a lot of things. You can tell, you know, propensity to disease. You can tell what sex they are. You can tell what their physical characteristics might be. You can tell maybe one day we'll be able to tell things like whether they have, you know, propensity to violence or deviant sexual, you know, interests or things like that. And so there's a, a lot more at stake. And I should add, you know, familial relations. You can look at DNA and, you know, learn that someone is or isn't the child of the parents they think they are, or they're related to someone or not related. There's a lot you can learn from DNA that really raises, I think, justifiable privacy concerns that differentiate it from fingerprints. Yeah, very, very interesting. In your book, the one thing you talked about, one of the things you talked about that I thought was pretty interesting are the differences between DNA use in the field of science and DNA use in forensics in the field of criminal justice and in the way it's used, the way it's gathered and why there's differences between the two. Can you elaborate a little bit on the two different fields and maybe why that the medical field is more accurate than maybe you'll get in the forensics field? Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, when people hear DNA, they think it's sort of all the same thing. So if you go to your doctor when you're pregnant and you have a DNA test, you know, or if you, you know, go to a geneticist and have a test to see if you have maybe a certain gene or predisposition, people think, well, if all that's reliable, then why wouldn't crime scene DNA be reliable? Why isn't criminal justice DNA reliable? And I think when you think about it, the answer is pretty intuitive. You know, when you go to the doctor and you have a blood test, you don't bring in some bloody Band-Aid from your garbage can and say, hey, test this and tell me if I'm, you know, if I have the breast cancer gene. You have a blood sample taken or a DNA sample taken in a controlled and sterile environment. Your doctor is going to put on gloves. They're going to label your vial very clearly. So the kind of way the evidence is or the uh, sample is collected is, is fully controlled. So you, you will know if anything goes wrong because there's only one person's DNA. You're going to have an ample amount of it and so forth. It's going to be well kept and controlled. Uh, conditions. In contrast, crime scenes, of course, aren't like that. Crime scenes are more like the bloody band-aid out of the garbage. You know, a sample from a crime scene isn't sterile for obvious reasons. It doesn't have a clear association with a single person. You don't know who's going to be leaving their DNA somewhere. It could be more than one person in the sample. If it is more than one person, it's not always obvious that there's, you know, how many people there are. In fact, studies show it's quite easy to confuse what you think is, say, two people in a DNA sample and, and when it's really three or think it's three when it's really four or more. So it can kind of cloud the results. It's also going to be potentially subject to what we call degrading elements, which is to say DNA is you know, a little fragile. And if you subject it to certain conditions like heat or light or moisture or even, frankly, the indigo uh, that dyes denim – these elements have an effect of degrading the quality of the DNA. And so when you run a test, your results get a little screwy and messed up. So all of these things, the lack of control, the fact that you don't really know who's in the sample, the potential for the sample to be compromised in some way, the risk that there's very little DNA. And so what you think you're getting, you know, you don't get good results because there's just not enough there. These are all things that really intensely complicate DNA in the forensic context in a way that it's not complicated in the clinical context. And one last piece is that clinical DNA testing is a different kind of DNA test. 
many people may remember from like high school biology that DNA is sort of a double helix uh, structure and each of the little rungs on the DNA ladder are made up of these base pairs that have this sort of GTCA. I don't want to get too scientific, but have these different characteristics. And when you sequence the genome, you look at those letters, you're trying to find the order of the letters. And sequencing is a lot of what clinical researchers do. They look at sequences or specific sequences of a genome. The kind of testing that's typically done in the forensic context is actually different. They're not looking at actual sequence. They're looking at something else. They're actually looking at the length of certain strands, parts of the DNA strand. But that's another thing. It's actually sort of an altogether different test as well. It's often not even the same kind of test, even setting aside some of the challenges of the forensic and crime scene context. Very interesting. One thing in your book that really jumped out at me with regards to how long DNA can stay in a place if it's not being degraded, like you were just talking about, there was a, a story you wrote about, uh, happened at Yale, I believe, back in 2009, a woman, I guess, had, had fallen down a, a chase behind a wall, and when they went to check the area, swab the area, whatever they do it to collect the DNA, they found DNA of someone that had died two years earlier, but their DNA was still there because they worked on building that area. Yeah. It's a pretty compelling, many people may remember this was a Yale graduate student who was murdered in her lab and her body was deposited through the ceiling into a mechanical chase behind the wall. And um, as you say, when they swabbed her body, they found the man who ultimately was convicted of the offense, but they also found a second person's DNA in large quantities, well-preserved. And it turned out it was this person who had been in the convicted offender database in Connecticut, but um, had died years earlier. And so it just was a testament. And he had been responsible for building that mechanical chase many years earlier when the building was erected. And because it was a scientific lab, it was heat controlled, climate controlled, moisture controlled all year. And so this DNA that he had deposited during a sort of hot and sweaty summer building the lab stayed preserved pristinely behind the wall until it showed up in this forensic examination. And I think that's a very good example of how persistent DNA is. You know, it can stick around for a long time, especially when it's somewhere kind of off the beaten path. And also how dangerous these associations could be because you could absolutely imagine that if he had been you know, alive, he would have been apprehended as an accomplice. They would have said, oh, he knew exactly where to stash a body because he had built this secret space. It could have really been a miscarriage of justice. Um, And we've seen now several of these cases popping up where DNA, it turns out, especially when you're doing what you do in the criminal or sorry, the crime scene context, which is check for just, you know, as few as a dozen or so cells, when you're getting to such low, low quantities of DNA, there's a real risk that you're finding DNA that got to where it is in ways that, you know, aren't in fact what you might think. And so studies have shown again and again, things like if you, you know, if two people shake hands and the one handles a knife, not only is it possible that that first person's DNA ends up on the knife, but it's possible and likely that their DNA can end up on the knife without even the second person, the person who actually handled the knife showing up on the knife. So there's a lot of ways in which our DNA travels. Even when we speak, you know, particles of saliva that are very DNA rich can land on objects, can land on spaces, and we sort of leave a DNA trace that might look like one thing when it really is, in fact, something quite different. Yeah, it certainly is a scary, scary thing to think that that could happen, where you could be implicated falsely in a crime and you know, have nothing absolutely to do with it, no other evidence except for DNA. 
So for your DNA being there, and it could have been, you know, transferred there in a secondary fashion. So are there any noteworthy cases that come to mind for you that you'd like to share with the Felony Friday audience about where someone has been wrongly convicted? Well, there's and then been Yeah. I mean, there's a handful. It's so first I should say it's often hard to know when someone's there's a handful of wrongful conviction cases, but in terms of transfer, it's often hard to know when someone's been wrongfully accused because you, you know, if they were convicted, it's often the case that the DNA is the basis for conviction. They maintain their innocence, but you don't know if it's in fact, you know, if it was in fact erroneous or, or not erroneous. I think there are some really high profile cases everyone's familiar with, like the Amanda Knox case where this foreign student in Italy, where they said that they, one of the sort of more inculpatory pieces of information was some trace DNA they said they found. And uh, there were a lot of questions about whether that was accurate and how it would have gotten there. There's a very high profile case that happened in California where I think this kind of miscarriage of justice was narrowly averted. In that case, a man was murdered in his home. A millionaire was murdered in a home invasion style killing. And the technicians you know, swabbed his hands and fingers for DNA and came up with a DNA profile. The profile was run in the database. It matched in the database to a man who had kind of a history of sort of petty offenses, sort of fit the profile of someone who might escalate to this kind of behavior. He also had, a, you know, sort of intoxication and mental health problems. And so he was apprehended and held for five months pretrial charged with this millionaire's murder. But it turned out he was lucky to have an attorney who was on the ball. And it turned out that the man had a kind of ironclad alibi because he had been in a hospital sort of detox ward all night. He had been picked up that evening of the murder by paramedics on the street for public intoxication and taken to this hospital where he spent the night and therefore could not have done the murder. So the question became, well, how would this guy's DNA have ended up on the millionaire's hands then? And after trying to figure this out, they realized that the same paramedics that took him to the hospital later that evening handled the body of the decedent or worked on the, the victim of the homicide. And so... The theory was that they had attached, these paramedics had attached like, you know, blood monitoring instruments and so forth to the defendant or the accused's fingers, then attached the same instruments to the victim of the homicide, and that had transferred the DNA. And that's certainly consistent with, you know, what we know about how DNA transfers. We know that it transfers readily in laundry. We know that it transfers quite a bit. So... I think, you know, the key thing here is I don't think a lot of lawyers even, even defense lawyers realize that just because you hear those, you know, magic words, DNA match or DNA found, it really doesn't mean that we know for sure what happened. You have to ask, well, how much DNA was it? Where was it found? What does it mean? Because otherwise you really could, again, draw some wrong conclusions or jump the gun and fail to do the kind of investigation that you need to. You know, if the intoxicated guy had said, look, I have never been there. I have no idea what they're talking about. I'm sure many a lawyer would have just said, look, they have your DNA. It's over. You should take a plea. Otherwise you're going to jail for life. And we would never find out about that wrongful conviction. That's scary stuff. So do you think that all cases that have used DNA evidence then, do you think they need to be, need to reassess these cases or at least some of them that don't have other evidence surrounding them? I will say I'm most worried about what are the database cases, the cases where a match is found in a DNA database and then the case is built around that. Because if there's a lot of other strong evidence, you might have DNA that sort of points a direction it shouldn't, you know, it kind of puts a nail in the coffin as it were. 
But many times, you know, the biggest concern arises in cases in which really the only evidence in the case is the DNA, or it's really the only, you know, truly inculpatory evidence in the case. And those, I think, are really big concerns and worthy of reconsideration. That said, I mean, even a case that has some other evidence, oftentimes, I think, we don't ask hard questions about what that evidence means or how powerful it's going to be because we have DNA. And the book has a number of examples like this. And I think we've also seen, unfortunately, a kind of willingness to dismiss some of the problems that arise with DNA as somehow kind of atypical or one-off, when in fact, I think the kind of poor quality of laboratory regulation in our country suggests that these issues are much more acute than we want to think they are. And, you know, making sure that labs are operating up to standards should be a really high priority. How would that be enforced? How would you make sure that labs are operating up to standards? Is it as simple as putting in a set of procedures that all labs have to follow? Or how far off course are these labs? Some of these labs? Well, I think they're pretty far off course now. You know, I sort of jokingly say uh, when I talk to people about this, it's not a joke, it's real, that you know, most states have greater regulation of nail salons and nail technicians than they do of crime labs and crime scene technicians. In most states, there are no mandatory accreditation requirements for crime labs. There's no licensing requirement for crime lab technicians. No state that I'm aware of requires blind proficiency testing, which is to say, asks a technician to do a DNA analysis, you know, not knowing that in fact they're being tested and then checks whether in fact they're doing what they're supposed to do. Some states will do that for drug testing. And the reason they do it is because as we've seen recently in the news quite a bit, drugs are such a sensitive thing that they worry that some analysts may be corrupted and just, you know, start stealing the drugs or not testing the drugs. And so some sort of good labs do do blind proficiency testing to make sure that analysts can get caught if they are in fact not testing or, or they're stealing the drugs. But we don't do anything like that for DNA and we don't have these kind of compulsory regulations. Another thing I'd like to point to is the, in order to participate in the federal DNA database, there are some requirements for quality control. And one of them is that the lab be accredited. But unfortunately, the accrediting system is really not quite up to snuff. It was held over from what was essentially a professional club, just kind of giving everybody a certificate without real rigor. It's gotten quite a bit more rigorous in recent times, but it's still essentially a paper review by your peers. You know, it's essentially... One group of lab technicians will go to another lab. They'll ask for paperwork. It's completely self-selected. You know, the lab can choose which cases they want to hand over, which files they want to hand over. And that kind of very paper level, everybody knows what's going to happen. Everybody knows that it is happening. You know, that's the sort of way that the accreditation is awarded. And so given that it's essentially a paperwork audit, it's really not effective at catching malfeasance. And we see time and again, labs caught up in major scandals are accredited labs that none of the things that they were doing were caught by the accreditation process. You know, in contrast, this is a final point, the FBI actually does, the other aspect of the quality control is to check to make sure that the things that are put into the federal database, they actually qualify for inclusion, that labs aren't accidentally putting into the federal DNA database things that shouldn't be in the federal DNA database. And those audits are actually done in a different way. The FBI does do surprise kind of spontaneous inspections. So, you know, they show up to the lab and they randomly pull 100 files from the lab's cases and they review each of those labs to see that 
you know, it's in compliance. And when you look at the success rates of those audits, when you look at how often mistakes are found in those audits, it's truly remarkable. I mean, the labs have gotten a lot better since the FBI began doing these blind pulls, but it's a much higher rate of, you know, error than you'd expect. So on average, in the last six years of doing these audits, there's about a 6% error rate, meaning six in 100 samples that are in the DNA database don't belong there or shouldn't be there. And when you see that kind of error rate and you compare that to what the quality control side, where frankly, it's a lot harder to avoid some kinds of error. And you say to yourself, well, what do we think, you know, is the rate of error on that side? It's easy to see. It's, it's probably quite a bit higher than most people would be comfortable with. And I'm sort of randomly, let me just say one last point on this front. You know, I live in New York and in New York, there's very strict requirements about restaurants. You know, they have to have all this licensing and regulation. They get surprise inspections. They get surprise inspected like twice a year. They have to post their grade. You can look online to see just how many rat droppings they have in their kitchens. And all of that is completely transparent and available to consumers. And yet for our crime labs, again, we have nothing like that. You can't read the accreditation reports when these even these paper inspections are done. There's no requirement that the lab posts online you know, what was found or what their sort of status is. They will often post that they are accredited, but they don't even post the materials that show why they were accredited and so forth. And so, and there's no surprise inspections. They're not regularly inspected the same way. There's none of that licensing and so forth. So, you know, I think, again, it's a real sign that we're treating our sandwiches more seriously than our crime labs. That's a slogan right there. <laughs> Could run for office on that. Exactly. That's a great point. And, you know, you have to get a license to, you know, as you were saying, they monitor the haircutting industry and nail salon industry more closely than some of this stuff. Yeah. And I myself am a libertarian, and I might disagree with the fact that we're even collecting all this DNA evidence. We have these databases. But if we're going to do it, it should be transparent, like you said. Exactly. It should be consistent throughout. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, so for instance, just to go back to those audits of what goes into the crime scene labs, a significant number of them, of the kind of problems is the uploading of crime victims. Uh, You know, and they put in the profile of the crime victim, which, you know, again, I think is just a testament to how we need to take these roles really seriously, because obviously if you're a victim of a crime and they're you know, taking your DNA, telling you, well, we need it in order to, you know, prove the case against the person who did this to you. Never in a million years would you dream that there are not sufficient regulations in place to ensure that, in fact, your DNA is not now in the possession of the government for perpetuity. So these kind of audits really need to be taken seriously and be more rigorous than they are. Absolutely. So one more thing I want to encourage everyone to pick up Aaron's book. It's called Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. And I got to say, the uh, the cover page is fantastic, too. It has the, the DNA double helix across the front. And then it's like jail bars with, with some hands right there. So it's really an attractive cover. So be sure to check that out. Just one more thing before we say goodbye. Can you uh, share with the audience where they can find out more about you or find your work? Sure. Well, um, happily, a number of the chapters from the book were published online and in various media. So the Daily Beast and the Atlantic and the New Republic all published chapters or excerpts of chapters. So if you kind of Google my name in any of those, you might come across some of that. I've also written a little bit for Slate on these issues. And if you go to my faculty webpage at NYU, Uh, law school. There's a number of kind of resources and links to things I've done then. And then lastly, I should say I tweet, not with intensity, but I tweet on DNA issues at Aaron Murphy's Law. So that's another place if people are interested in keeping up with some of the kind of cutting edge things that are happening. 
Well, not many people tweet with intensity. <laughs> it's hard to keep up, but I will link to all of your stuff in the show notes so our listeners can find you. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with the Felling Friday audience. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Well, that is a wrap for today. Hopefully everyone learned something today. I know that I learned a little bit. And because of that, I now will forever be terrified that I'll be falsely implicated based on DNA evidence. Kidding, hopefully. But it really is terrifying to hear these truths about DNA evidence. It certainly is not the slam dunk that they make it out to be on TV shows or even when they talk about it on the news. To hear about these errors inherent in the system and the gross lack of oversight of the database. And as I said earlier, you know, as a libertarian, as someone that loves liberty and loves freedom, I don't think we should have a federal DNA database managed by a federally coercive government. That's stupid. But since we do have one, I'd like it to at least right now when we have it to be transparent, to be as transparent as possible. And I'd like every single lab that participates to be held to the same exact standards. So there's consistency throughout the system, at least as of today, that'll make it function better. Now, remember, guys, if you like the show, please subscribe. Leave us a comment and rating on iTunes and Stitcher. You can find links to all of the show notes at lionsofliberty.com FF22. And you can also find a link on there to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Please remember to follow our social media accounts, Lions of Liberty. And also, if you haven't joined our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum, then what the heck are you waiting for, guys? All you have to do is type Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type that in the search bar on Facebook and join. It's simple. Do it. Remember, you can contact me at felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. If you have any questions, you want to uh, give me some ideas for a guest or some topics you want to talk about on the show, just shoot it my way. And please, if you're new to the show, if this is your first time listening, check out the full Felony Friday archive, which can now be found at felonyfriday.com. That's right. I bought that domain and I'm forwarding from it. So it's awesome. Felonyfriday.com. Check it out. As always, thank you everyone for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>